beginning a new series called Revival, Stronger Than Ever. Today, we begin the recovery. Literally, today, we lean into a deeper understanding. And as the country continues to open up and we continue to struggle uh, as communities to figure out how to live with the, the new normal, with masks and no masks and the whole vaccination issue, we also know that our businesses are struggling to find employees. We know, too, that our churches, not just Linden Road, but others are, are struggling to find their place in making a difference in our community. And we also know truly that it's going to take time to recover what it is that we've lost. And so as we look at this, I want to just begin by looking at the book of Chronicles. And let me give you just a little bit of history, because I think once we lean into understanding uh, the scriptures at a new level, even in this season, that we'll see what a wonder it is that God has given us the Bible and what a wonder it is that we can learn if we just spend time in his word reading about the words he's written. Yes, he wrote it about a nation and a people thousands of years ago, but it's very applicable to our current culture and the issues that we're leaning into because God has written about how to recover from a national crisis uh, right here in the book of Chronicles. And if you're ready to do some learning, just let me share a few things here about the history of this book in the Old Testament. First of all, the book of Chronicles is a book of recovery. And let me tell you about it. So uh, in 606 BC, the nation of Israel was exiled to Babylonia. And what that basically means, Babylonians were a people group that came along and they surrounded Jerusalem and they tore down its walls, and they literally carried off everyone into captivity and into a new land, about 800 miles away. These were God's people, and they lost everything. They lost their homes, they lost their jobs, they lost their identities, they lost their loved ones. And then for 70 years, they lived in a refugee camp, a large refugee camp outside the city of Babylon. And then God set them free. He used a Persian king by the name of Cyrus to conquer the Babylonians. And then Cyrus issued an order that basically opened everything back up to all the nations that Babylon had, had conquered. And he basically said to them, go home. It's back to normal. Well, you know, it really wasn't normal. But he told them that they could restart their businesses and their jobs and that they could worship their God. And that's what the Israelites did. And so in 536 B.C., they went back home. They returned. They packed up their possessions and their children, and they marched up the 800 miles back to the Holy Land. Now, how would they recover? How would they reestablish the patterns and the habits that they had that would help them avoid the previous mistakes that got them in this mess? So to lead to that endeavor, God sent them two spirit-filled leaders, one by the name of Nehemiah and the other by the name of Ezra. Now, Nehemiah is the one that rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem so that they would be safe because we know that safety is like the first concern. And then the second leader was Ezra. And Ezra wasn't a builder of walls. He was a builder of hearts, people's hearts. He was a builder of character. Nehemiah gave the people the wall and Ezra gave them God's word. So when you open your Bible to the contents, you'll find that there are 17 historical books at the very front. The ninth historical book is the book of 1 Samuel. It's followed by 2 Samuel, and then by 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and then by 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. Now, the, the books of Samuel and Kings record the political history of Israel during what we call the kingdom period. And the book of Chronicles records the same 
history. Now, the question is, why would you need two histories? Well, the first was histories for, was written for details, and the second was written for life lessons. So Samuel and Kings tell the stories of what happened to Israel, and then Chronicles tells the story of what happened to Israel as a result of their choices. It's useful to know, too, that it was a group of prophets that wrote Samuel and Kings, and then Ezra himself wrote the book of Chronicles. Ezra wrote to a discouraged people because they were coming back to the land that at one time had flourished under their grandfathers, but that had perished under their fathers. God had removed them from the land to teach them some lessons, if you will. God was now bringing them back so they could put those lessons into practice. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think our nation shut down and God is bringing it back even as we speak? Chronicles is going to be our go-to for the next couple weeks. This book is going to be our teacher, and it's going to help us understand. And if we learn its lessons, we will be able to recover better. We'll be able to recover faster and stronger, and even with more ability to help our friends and our neighbors, and even our nation live righteously as the way God desires. At the same time, if we fail to heed its lessons, it's likely our nation will never recover or at least not to the extent that we want, or God wants, or our world needs. Let's take a look at 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I don't know about you, but wouldn't it be nice if our plague, if this global pandemic was cut short, and if we woke up tomorrow morning to find out that the COVID-19 had just disappeared completely, had just gone away? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? And how would that change our life? So the story we're going to read is about a plague that was cut short here in the Old Testament. But the lesson we're going to learn is about what to do when you've done something wrong. Let me ask you this. Have you ever done something wrong and you knew it was wrong, but you chose to do it anyway? Unfortunately, we probably all are guilty of this. And as we look at today's story, King David is a no exception. David was one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. And yet we know he failed many times. And yet at the same time, we know that God still loved him and God still used him. Now, the story of 1 Chronicles 21 is a story specifically chosen by Ezra to teach us a lesson about how to restart. His lesson for us today is about starting over with God when we've offended him or disobeyed him. To teach us this lesson, Ezra selects not what we would consider a huge sin in the life of David, but it's actually a small, little obscure sin that David commits. Ezra doesn't tell us about the big sins that David committed, like adultery with Bathsheba or when he murdered Uriah the Hittite, or even how there was the rebellion of his son Absalom. Ezra tells us the story of doing something that sometimes isn't even always wrong. And I'm wondering, do you, do you know what this is? Well, in our evangelical tradition, we have a whole list of sins, right? Fatal sins. We have the nasty nine, some call it, or the dirty dozen, or we have the seven deadly sins. And if you grew up in a Christian home, in the 60s or 70s, you learned that good boys don't smoke, drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? <laughs> Those were sins. It was black and white, real simple, no question. We knew what they were. In First Chronicles 21, David does something none of us would ever think of doing. We've never been tempted to do what he did. We've never even thought about what he did. So what did David do? He took a census. Now, <laughs> what's wrong with a census? Well, let's read about it as chapter 21. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David said to Joab, 
and the commanders of the troops, Go and count Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring a report to me so I can know their number. Well, census aren't a bad thing, right? Our government is required to take a census. We just did one last year, even in the midst of a pandemic, that helps us reestablish the congressional seats, and it determines how funds are released from the federal government based all upon population distribution. The census helps us figure out how many freeway lanes there are on our highways. It helps a school superintendent project how many students they're going to have and how many teachers they're going to need and how many classrooms to construct. There's even a book in the Old Testament called Numbers where God himself ordered a census of Israel and they left Egypt. He ordered a second census as they got ready to enter into the promised land. So censuses themselves aren't a sin, but for some reason David's was. Because David was taking one to do what? To measure his own greatness. Because he wasn't at war and he didn't need to know how many fighting men he had. He just wanted to know how many troops he had so he could pat himself on the back. So Joab, the commander of the army, knew there was no good reason for the census. And so he says what here? Verse 3. Joab replied, May the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over. My lord the king, aren't there all my lord's servants? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab. So Joab left and traveled throughout Israel and then returned to Jerusalem. Joab gave the total troop registration to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 armed men and in Judah itself, 470,000 armed men. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the count because the king's command was detestable to him. This command was also evil in God's sight, so he afflicted Israel. Have you ever been afflicted by God? Some people are wondering, right, if this COVID-19 is an, an affliction by God. Whether God caused it or he allows it, regardless, it is part of our life. And so when we look at it throughout scripture, God uses plagues to get people's attention. And right now he's got a lot of people's attention, right? And I hope he has ours as we lean into this. So to David's credit, David says here in verse 8, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. Now please take away your servant's guilt, for I have been very foolish. You almost have to wonder if David rehearsed this ahead of time. It's possible he thought, I'm going to take the census, and I know it's wrong, but I also know God loves me. And so after I take it, if I get caught, I'll just ask God to forgive me, and he will. In fact, I think there's a lot of Christians that think that almost every time we sin right? Don't we? But this sin doesn't take place in the New Testament. It happens in the Old Testament. Now we know that God's a God of justice, and so sin always has to be paid for. We know that Jesus paid for our sins permanently as a once and for all sacrifice on the cross, but the cross hasn't happened yet. So David's sin hasn't already been paid for. It's going to have to be paid for now. Look here at verse 9. Look here at verse 9. Then the Lord instructed Gad, David's seer, Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three choices. Choose one of them for yourself and I will do it. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtaking you or three days of the sword of the Lord. A plague on the land. The angel of the Lord bringing destruction to the whole territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. One thing we know for sure is that sin is always painful. And so is pain for the price of sin. So if you're David, how would you choose between famine, war, and plague? Here's what happens. Verse 13. David answered Gad, I am in anguish. Please let me fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are very great. 
but don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 Israelite men died. Then God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, but when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked, relented concerning the destruction, and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand now! The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. When David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem, David and the elders, covered in sackcloth, fell down. David said to God, Wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? I am the one who has sinned and acted very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and against my father's family. But don't let the plague be against your people. So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite. David went up in Gad's command, spoken in the name of the Lord. Ornan was threshing wheat when he turned and saw the angel. His four sons, who were with him, hid. David came to Ornan, and when Ornan looked and saw David, he left the threshing floor and bowed to David and his face to the ground. And then David said to Ornan, Give me this threshing floor plot so that I may build an altar to the Lord on it. Give it to me for the full price so the plague on the people may be stopped. Ornan said to David, Take it, my lord. The king may do whatever he wants. See, I give the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. King David answered Ornan, No, I insist on paying full price, for I will not take for the Lord what belongs to you, or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 15 pounds of gold for the plot. He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. At that time, David offered sacrifices there when he saw that the Lord answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now what's interesting, and one of the reasons that Ezra tells this story, is to help the Israelites understand the history of their temple and why it was located where it was. Their temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. It's now the dwelling place of God on earth. It's the one place they were allowed to make sacrifices to atone for their sins. It's critical they rebuild the temple. So Ezra wants them to understand why the temple was built where it was. And this is the story that explains that. The angel of the Lord stops his plague at the threshing floor of Ornan, the scripture says. A threshing floor is a windy place. It's usually the top of a bluff or a cliff or on a hill where there's just enough wind so that when the farmer can, brings his wheat there, he can take a pitchfork and he can throw it up in the air. The wind will blow the chaff away and the kernels of wheat, which are heavier than the chaff, will fall back to the ground for the farmer to collect. Now, Ezra doesn't tell us this because everyone reading the story knew it, but the threshing floor of Ornan was located on the ancient Mount Moriah. Have you heard of that before? Moriah? Anybody know what happened there? It actually happened 1,500 years earlier. To get the full story, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 22, where God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice to me there. So Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, where he straps him to an altar and is about to thrust a knife into his chest when God says, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you will not withhold anything from me because you did not withhold your only son. Ezra wants the people to know why the ground of the temple mount is on holy ground. 
Well, the plague of the angel of the Lord was stopped there, and a lamb was provided there in place of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So the second reason that Ezra wants us to know the census and plague story is because this story is our story. It's all about a do-over story. Like David, we've all done things to puff up our pride and from time to time, right? We may never have been t tempted to commit adultery or murder, but we've all given in to temptation to commit little sins, if you will. Sins we know were wrong when we did them because God told us they were wrong. So Ezra is reminding us that it's the little sins that matter and must be atoned for. It's the little sins that can create huge sorrow, like this one did for Israel. I mean, 70,000 men lost their lives because of the vanity of one leader. So what's the lesson? Well, Ezra wants us to see this idea of forgiveness, what it looks like and what happens when we repent. Ezra is teaching us too the costliness of sin. One man's sin, which didn't really seem like a big deal, but it did, right? One man's sin cost 70,000 other men their lives. Sometimes we think what we do in the privacy of our own minds is just between us and God. It's just a little sin, we say. It won't hurt anybody, except maybe me, but that's my choice. And besides, God loves me, so after I ask forgiveness, he'll let, good, let it go without any consequences. So we know that David's sin was small, and it was personal, and yet it was incredibly costly. And what was God's response? It was creative and instructive and ultimately merciful. God's response was creative in its choices. David, do you want three years of war or three months of famine or three days of a plague? That's creative, isn't it? God gives David a choice because he wants David to take responsibility for his own retribution. So David chooses. He chooses the option that allows for God's mercy. I'd rather fall into God's hands than man's hands, he says. So the plague starts and people die. And as these numbers mount, David realizes the magnitude of his sin I did this, he says. I caused this to happen. And what happened in David's heart is a roadmap to how God restores us. Ezra, in fact, uses this story to teach us how to reconcile with God when we've disobeyed him. It's a simple process, really. You might want to write it down. In fact, it's here in the worship notes. The first thing that Ezra encourages us to do is to admit our sin. David says, wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? He's saying, this is my fault. I caused this. I own this. The lesson of the census is that God relents when we repent. There's a principle here that God relents when we repent. When we sin, effects are put into place. The way to reverse them starts by admitting that you caused them. So the second step, Ezra's teaching us, is this, is to take responsibility for your actions. David says what? Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and against my father's family, but don't let the plague be against your people. Before the plague comes, David says, please don't let me fall into human hands. And then after the plague arrives, he says, let your hands be against me. So we need to see here that every restart, every recovery begins with taking responsibility. We have to own what we've done and be willing to shoulder the responsibility for the harm we've caused. And then the third lesson for us is that once we accept responsibility, we have to make things right. And how do you make things right with God? Well, first you start by admitting your sin and taking responsibility. Sometimes you really don't have to know what more to do. David doesn't know what more to do, so God tells him. 
Now pay attention here in verse 18. So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. God tells Gad to tell David to set up an altar. Now that's not a hard thing to do, right? David could do that easily. It's a few hours work. He has to gather some rocks or some wood and build a platform there in the middle of the field. But let me read verse 18 again. He says, So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that when God asked David to set up an altar, he intended for David to do more than just set up an altar? He doesn't tell him to do any more than that. But what is God implying and expecting when the altar is built? And here's hoping that David is going to sacrifice something on it. So here's the most important lesson of this chapter. Ezra wants us to see what to do when we've disobeyed God and we've pushed him away. Ezra wants us to see how to restart after we've sinned, no matter how minor the sin. And then with the rest of the chapter, David didn't just set up the altar. He actually buys the field and the wood for the fire and the oxen for the sacrifice. In fact, he doesn't accept those as gifts, even though they're offered. He buys them at full price. So Ezra is showing us that once David comes around to owning his sin and taking responsibility for it, he not only does what God asks, he does more than what God asks. So what's the fourth lesson from the threshing floor? If you want to get close to God, be obedient by doing what he asks. And if you really want to get close to God, do more than he asks. So step four is to do more than he asks. David, who will forever be known as the man after God's own heart, was also a man after God's own heart because, more than anything, David wanted to please God. And he pleased God by treating God like he was the most precious thing in the world to him. What does he do? He sets up the altar, and he offers a sacrifice, and he pays full price for the animals and the wood, and he even buys the field for which the he makes the sacrifice. The story starts with David in sin, and it ends with us all wanting to be like David. There's a story in Matthew chapter 26 about a woman who comes to Jesus and pours a bottle of expensive perfume over his feet. The bottle of perfume was from India, and back in that day, transportation wasn't exactly cheap. That bottle of perfume probably was worth around $50,000 in today's money. One of the disciples says, what a waste. We could have used that money to feed the poor. And what's interesting is Jesus actually rebukes that disciple by saying, this woman did a noble thing for me. He accepted the lavish gift because he knew, Jesus, he was worthy of the lavish gifts. It's easy to rationalize being frugal towards God because he doesn't need anything, right? He owns everything. But God is touched when we act lavishly towards him. David decides he isn't going to do the minimum. Verse 24, back in Chronicles says, I insist on paying the full price, for I will not take for the Lord what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Ezra writes for his people. He tells stories of things they will never want to repeat, and he tells stories that they may want to imitate over and over again. So this is a story to imitate. As we move back into the land, as we begin to recover the life that we lost because of the pandemic, we need to avoid sin as much as we can. But if we do sin, whether it's something big or small, let's respond to it like David did. Let's thrust ourselves on the mercy of God. Let's admit our sin. Let's take responsibility for it. Let's do whatever he tells us to do to make up for it. 
and then do more than make up for it. Let's do things that move the heart of God when he sees our hearts moving towards him. Can I get an amen? Indeed, amen. So it's simply this idea. I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will offer the Lord that which costs me something. So as we begin to find a, a normal life in a post-COVID world, let's be righteous in every chance we get. And let's lavish towards God every time we can. When we hurt somebody, let's do more than say, I'm sorry. When God asks for an offering, let's buy the field. You've heard it said you can't outgive God. What if we tried to outlove God? You think we could do it? No way. He'll always show us more love than we show him. But wouldn't it be fun to try? What do we have to lose? What do you have to lose? And so as we come out of COVID-19, let us be a church that lavishly loves our neighbors. It's going to cost us something, but I promise it'll be worth it. Let's pray.